Kramatorsk Diaries, Part 7, by Paul Conroy. Hunted. After the celebrations of the film launch in Odessa, and as the last drops of cognac evaporated through our weary pores, it was time to gear up for the Kherson trip. On Sunday morning, Kaylin, Zarina and I, Katie's holding the fort in Odessa for this trip, Somewhat gingerly loaded up my increasingly battered-looking Honda 4x4 with the necessary kit. I've grown to love my old Honda CRV. It's done for a year and a half on the front lines of Ukraine, including the Donbass winter, and I'm now hoping that it survives long enough to return to the UK. Not that I think it'll be very useful back home. More to see the faces of the mechanics when I take it in for an MOT. I can hear their exasperated words so clearly. What have you done to this poor car? A little light off-road usage, I will reply with studied nonchalance, before they put it straight in the broken car bin. Still, it's holding its own, and judicious use of gaffer tape should see it through another winter. We passed through our first checkpoint with the usual ease, a quick flash of a military press card, and we were on our way. The second checkpoint was a different kettle of fish. The military wore full-body armour and helmets, which is not always the case here, and there were no quick formalities either. They checked and photographed all our press cards and made calls to verify our identities at headquarters. The process took about 20 minutes, and on leaving, one of the guards quipped, good luck sleeping in that place. Well, that shut us all up for a while. And to Kaelin broke the silence with a quizzical, what exactly did he mean by that? I said nothing, but nodded up the road ahead. Five towering black plumes of smoke drifted across the horizon, and everyone could hear the unmistakable thump of artillery in the distance. Regardless, we'd made it through the last checkpoint into her son. Ukraine is fighting on many fronts, so many in fact that even being here, it's challenging to keep up with the different statuses. The last time I'd considered her son, in any depth, it had been scenes of liberation and jubilation. A carefully planned strategic manoeuvre had seen the Russians rooted from her son in the autumn of last year. It was reminiscent of the liberation of Paris. We crawled through the deserted streets, looking for people, but there weren't many about. What in God's name, I said aloud to anyone who cared to listen, but all seemed lost in their own private worlds. The main square, where millions worldwide had viewed the iconic images of freedom delivered by exhausted Ukrainian troops, was empty. Tumbleweed would not have been out of place. And now, the only sign of any life was the occasional speeding car. One thing not absent the ominous explosions of artillery rounds detonating at various spots across the city centre. The explanation is simple, if not appalling. When the Russians were first out of Kherson last September, they moved to the other side of the river, set up their artillery positions, and made the newly liberated city uninhabitable with a sustained barrage of rockets and heavy artillery fire. The residents of Kherson are sitting ducks in a proverbial barrel, and life here is almost, but not quite yet, untenable. We weave through the streets, pockmarked with artillery craters and strewn with shattered glass 
blown from the tall surrounding buildings. It was hard to identify a single structure without damage, and from the consistent crunch of explosions, the Russians had not yet finished with Hassan. We arrived at a cafe popular with Hassan resistance. I won't name it for security reasons, as the problem of Russian collaborators remaining in the city is a real and ever-present threat. The cafe owner was a wonderful and kind lady in her early sixties who greeted us with hugs. Before we could refuse, we were treated to the house special, sweet cottage cheese fried and served with yoghurt. She showed the shrapnel damage to the cafe. It had endured some near misses and I could sense they had gotten lucky so far. The cafe was a hub for the resistance and their tales of ingenuity and bravery are astonishing. Apart from security reasons, I'll refrain from discussing them here, but they will form the basis of the latest film on the Kherson resistance. The following day, we had arranged to meet some residents to discuss their experience throughout the occupation. The women told us tales of passive and extremely non-passive resistance with their run-ins with the Russian army. After inspecting his troops, Lord Nelson allegedly said, I don't know about the French, but they scared the shit out of me. I understand how he felt after witnessing the old babushka's rage at the mere mention of Russian soldiers. Our host, Igor, woke us early the following day. Come quickly, there's been an attack. We followed him down the street, and to our horror, the house where we had gathered the previous day was gone, destroyed moments earlier by Russian artillery. Stunned, we asked what had happened. We think collaborators saw you stood here talking. Maybe they think you lived here. They told the Russians the address. His words petered out. We've been here less than 24 hours, and already the Russians had identified, targeted and destroyed our suspected residents. They may be gone, but the Russians haven't forgotten her son, the city that resisted. Two hours later, I wrote the finishing lines to this piece. A colossal blast blew in the windows of the house in which I was writing. Racing outside, I saw that a grad rocket had just struck the home next door. We checked for injured people, but the place was thankfully empty. Now I'm all up for an unlucky coincidence now and then, but two strikes and two days are stretching the point a little, and I fear the Russians are actively hunting us on the ground and from the air. Attacking the press is a classic Russian tactic. It cuts off the information supply line, allowing their murderous activities to take place in the shadows, away from public scrutiny. Sobering. <laughs>